that is a happy day when you know that you have been saved. Amen? Do you know that you are saved by Jesus? And do you know that your sins have been washed away? So that makes for a happy day. And as we conclude the book of Ruth, we're gonna find uh, Naomi in that place. Someone said to me earlier in our study, this is really more the book of Naomi, isn't it? And I would agree with that. Kind of begins and ends with her. Ruth is an important player in that, highly significant, obviously, because of where she falls in the lineage of Jesus Christ. Boaz, highly significant as her husband, as we will see by the end of the chapter, but, but Naomi, God is not done with Naomi just because she was in the land of Moab, scattered outside of the land, just because she comes back into the land famished and dispirited. God's not done with Naomi. And she's one to keep your eye on this morning. So Ruth chapter four, verse one, now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there and behold, the close relative of whom Boaz spoke was passing by. So he said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. He took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. And then he said to the closest relative, Naomi, who has come back from the land of Moab, has to sell the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. So I thought to inform you, saying, buy it before those who are sitting here and before the elders of my people. If you will redeem, redeem. But if not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem, and I am after you. And he said, I will redeem. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of the deceased, in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. <laughs> I can imagine the guy sitting there going, hold on, this is a bait and switch. <laughs> and the closest relative says, I cannot redeem. Father, there is only one who can redeem and his name is Jesus. And it's before you, Lord Jesus, this morning that we pray, before you that we worship, before you that we gather because of the precious value, Jesus, of your blood that has redeemed us and that stands to redeem anyone who will call on the name of the Lord. And I pray, Father, for that very blessing today that someone will call on the name of the Lord perhaps for the first time and be saved and be redeemed. Father, we thank you for this story of redemption. As we close it out this morning, I just ask Holy Spirit that you will guide our thoughts and our minds and give us insight and revelation. And Lord, as you are able to do, would you change us? Would our redemption, Lord, change us? In Jesus' name, amen. Wow, so I don't know if you were coming from Anacortes this morning and you got to ducking and you had to hang a left and go around. Well, if you were on the island yesterday uh, in the evening time, I left the house at 5.45 to go pick up my son Chris from the high school. I got back at 7.30 because we got diverted because of an accident. So I don't know if there was another one this morning or, or what was happening there. I'm thinking time to widen the road, but you know, that's just me, kind of crazy. Let's make it safe for everybody, but you know, whatever. So this morning we got diverted and we had to go around and yesterday I'm divided. So this morning as I came up to Duckin and there was yet another diversion, I'm like, how long is it gonna take me to get to church? You know, that, that extra mile was killing me. On the way yesterday, I was thinking, man, you've gotta be kidding me and, and how long it took and, and it was frustrating and there, you could see the frustration in so many other Drivers. Of course, I got home and, and I was expressing that frustration and my son, Corey, said, well, dad, you know, I'm sure your day is ending better than the person in the accident. I'm like, will you shut up? <laughs> Come on. <laughs> it's amazing how we stress out over such little things and how we just freak out over life and circumstance and it can be little things or big things. Maybe you're freaking out over a big thing this morning. Listen, I got a word for you, two words, really. Sit down which you're doing very well, and stop freaking out. Sit down and stop freaking out. Sometimes that's exactly what we have to do. Look at verse 18 of chapter three. We closed this last week, but 
Naomi says to Ruth, wait, my daughter, and the word wait is sit down. Why? Probably because Ruth at this point is wringing her hands and pacing the floor and wondering what's gonna happen next and how soon Boaz is gonna take care of things and oh my goodness, can, is there anything I can do to help him out? And, and Naomi says, sit down, my daughter, until you know how the matter turns out for the man will not rest until he has settled it today. You get it? Ruth, you don't have to work anymore. Ruth has been working the entire harvest, up early, home late, gleaning in the fields, gathering, beating out the, the stalks, trying to bring home the grain. She has been at the harvest every day from barley through wheat the entire season, the last two, two and a half months. And finally, here at the end of chapter three, Naomi says, Ruth, sit down. Boaz has got this. He will not rest until the matter is settled. So you rest. And I love the picture there, John 5, 16. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things, healing people, on the Sabbath. But he answered them and said, my father is working until now, and I myself am working for this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. In case anybody misses that, that was Jesus' perspective, absolutely equal with the Father, Jesus being God himself. The response of Jesus to the Shabbat shakedown of the Jewish leaders comes right out of the heart of God. And you need to hear it this morning as I've been trying to listen to it this week. You rest, I'll work. You rest, I'll work. Something bigger and, and higher than any human effort can achieve, something that we we realize is the only thing, the only thing in this life that brings sustaining, satisfying, settled rest. And it is not your work and it's not mine. It's the work of God. He brings rest. In fact, Hebrews chapter four, verse nine says, there remains a Shabbat rest for the people of God. The Hebrew pastor talking, I believe they're about Israel. There remains a rest for the people of God. They have not entered it yet. Because then in verse 10 he says, Hebrews 4.10, for as the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works. See, you know who has entered the rest of God. They're not freaking out over salvation. They're not worried, they're not striving, they're not legalistically trying to keep all the traditions and, and, and you know, uh, ordinances of, of faith to save themselves because they've entered God's rest as God did from his the pastor says. Do you realize God rested? I think you know this. God rested on the seventh day, right? Six days of creation, six days of work, and then on the seventh day, God rested. But have you ever thought about the fact that that is the only day God has taken off since the foundation of the world? He's been working ever since so that we might sit down and rest. It's how Jesus could say, my father is working until now. John 5, 36, for the works which the father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do, these testify about me that the father has sent me. I'm working, Jesus said. Sit down. John 10, 24, how long will you keep us in suspense, the Jewish leaders asked him. If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered and said, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. He said in John 10, 36, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I do not do the works of my Father, don't believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works, so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. The Father is working until now, and I myself am working. Sit down, my daughter, until you know how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest until he has settled it today. So the final chapter of this little book that is actually a big deal is the chapter of Boaz settling the matter while Ruth rests. In fact, Ruth has nothing else to do in the story but marry and have a child. 
Not that that's not work, ladies. I understand. But all she has to do now is rest. Let's follow this one through. Now, Boaz, verse one of chapter four, Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the close relative, the Goel, of whom Boaz spoke, was passing by. So he said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down, and he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. In ancient Israel, cities were typically built on a tell. You've heard of Tel Aviv. There's Tel Sheva, there's Tel Dan, the, the Tel. And, and that's how archaeologists can tell if a city <laughs> used to be there, right? Because they're, they're mounds, and they would find these mounds and begin to dig in these mounds and realize there was a city. Most of these cities were up on a hill, up on an elevated place. It was for security. And they would have stone walls all the way around, but there at the front of the wall would be a, an area called the gate. We're not talking about you know iron bars that would swing on a hinge or, or, or uh, wooden beams or slats. We're talking about an open archway. That would be the gate. An open archway that would lead into typically a courtyard, and this wide courtyard would have uh, alcoves in it that could, you'd think maybe like guard shacks, but they were alcoves on the either side of another uh, gate or another archway that then led into a narrow lane, which usually was angled going on into the city. Angled because it would be difficult to just charge into a city uh, on horseback or even uh, as an army. They'd have to go right and left and through these angles and then people could chuck stuff on top of them from up above. So an archway and an archway, and in the midst was the gate. This was the courtyard. It was the marketplace. We could call it the civic center. It's where you went for ancient social media. See, ancient social media was face-to-face. -face. You didn't look through a device. You looked into the eyes. I think that is a wise way to live our lives still today. You didn't need an app for news or, or info or for meetings or for updates. You just went to the gate. You wanna find out what's going on, go to the gate. You wanna hear from travelers, news from around the world, you go to the gate. You go to that courtyard area and that's where all the news was given and that's where the people would meet and that was also the courthouse. For there in the gate, there was a raised platform, usually by the inner archway, a raised platform and, and on it they would put a, a seat of some kind, a throne or chair and the judge of that city or the king of that city-state, or the mayor, if you want to call him, would sit there on that raised platform to give judgment when judgment was needed. Around the walls of the inside of this courtyard were benches, and so elders could sit at the benches when court was in session, and any and all legal claims would be settled there at the city gate. That's why Boaz goes there. He goes to the gate. Well, two reasons, really. One is he knows ultimately the Goel has to go through the courtyard, through that gateway to get into or out of the city. So he knows rather than go searching all over the fields to find the Goel, this other man, he would just go to the gate and wait for him to pass through, coming or going. But he also went there for the legal reasons. He went to the gate. Jesus said, John chapter 10, verse seven, I am the door of the sheep. Some of your Bibles say, I am the gate of the sheep. Now, he's talking about a different kind of gate, and yet the idea remains the same, that Jesus is the one through whom we must go to get to the city of God. Romans chapter five, verse one, as Jake read this morning, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We go through Jesus. Ephesians chapter two, verse 18, through him, Paul says we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. We both, Jew and Gentile. For anyone who says, again, that it's Jewish DNA that saves you, no, you have to go through the gate. You go through the Son. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. We have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil. That is, the Hebrew pastor says, his flesh. We go through Jesus. You have to go through Jesus. John 14, 6, he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through 
me. So it's absolutely clear that Jesus is the gate to God, the only way into the city of God, and he's the only one who is able to settle legal claims for eternity. He's the one to whom and through whom we must go. So Boaz here, he is at the gate, and, and he's waiting again for the next Goel in the line of Elimelech. You may remember from the last chapter that while Boaz is in that line, and Boaz would be a Goel, he's not the next Goel who has the right of claim over Naomi's property. So he has to do this correctly, and he, he stops this other man there in the courtyard, and then he gathers 10 men of the cities as a jury to legally settle the matter, and interestingly, note this, it's easy to miss, Boaz says, turn aside, friend. Right, verse one, turn aside, friend, and sit down here. Friend. Friend is, I, I just, I love Hebrew, not because I can speak it all that well, but it is so, so graphic. It, it gives such good pictures. And here, the Hebrew word for friend is not friend. Translators are doing their best that they can with, with what's a very strange statement that Boaz makes when he says, turn aside, Poloni Almoni. I'm not kidding you. I'm not kidding. Poloni Almoni. Is the, is, is the Hebrew phrase here. Turn aside, Poloni Almoni. I mean, he might say, turn aside, hubbub, bub. You know, it's, it's one of those very interesting sounding phrases and it's intentional. Turn aside, Poloni Almoni. The best that we can understand, the best that scholars have been, to, been able to figure out that Poloni Almoni means is Mr. So-and-so. Turn aside, so-and-so, Poloni Almoni. Why would he say that? I mean, I, I get why he would say, turn aside, friend, or hey, man, or hey, yo there, or dude, turn aside, but turn aside, Mr. So-and-so. Why would you say something like that? Well, possibly the writer, if indeed it was Samuel who wrote Ruth, didn't know the name. The name had been forgotten, had been lost, and so he, he didn't know the name of this original Goel, this, this other guy, and so he just says, ah, turn aside, Mr. So-and-so. We'll just go with that. But it's awfully intentional. Poloni Almoni, you know, you have to think that one through to put those two words together and come up with that phrase. That phrase is not used anywhere else. The, the two words are used separately, which is where we get so-and-so, but put together like this, we don't find this. Maybe, maybe it was to downplay the role of this Goel in the story. Ah, he's just a so-and-so. Or maybe, maybe the anonymity of this Goel was to spare his ancestors the embarrassment of his conduct, which we'll see in a moment. But I still wonder for all of those things, still, why not just say, hey, you or yo dude or something like that? I'm not even sure what yo dude is in Hebrew. I'll look it up and let you know. But Boaz had to know his name. He knows enough to know that this man is the next Goel. He has to know his name. He knows enough to know that there's a legal procedure he's got to go through if he himself is going to redeem the land and redeem the woman. So he has to know his name, and yet, the way we see Boaz carefully navigating the settling of this transaction implies that he knew the character of this guy, too. If this guy knows he can get his hands on the land, he'll take it. But he doesn't have the same kind of strength of character that he would also take the Moabite for a bride. So I think the best guess here of why Poloni Almoni is used is there is an intentional namelessness implying judgment. That this guy is not holding up his end. He's just Mr. So-and-so. While he could have had a great place in this story, in fact, realize looking back, this first Goel could have been in the lineage of the Messiah. But he backs off and says, uh-uh, can't, no can do He's also given another name in the story, which is really meant to stick, and we'll get there in a second. So Poloni Almoni, sit down here, Poloni Almoni, and feel free to use that at work tomorrow if you'd like to. 
Verse three, then he said to the Goel, Naomi, who has come back from the land of Moab, has to sell the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. So I thought to inform you, saying, buy it before those who are sitting here and before the elders of my people. And note this, he says, if you will redeem, redeem. But if not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem, and I am after you, and he said, I will redeem. He doesn't say it, he just says redeem. If you will redeem, redeem, because Boaz knows there's more than a field involved here. There's always more than a field involved. Something else is going on. If you'll redeem this entire deal, redeem it. But he doesn't, again, say it. He just says redeem, and the man says, I will redeem. Thanks a lot, Polonio Moni, verse five. Then Boaz says, on the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth the Moabitess. And he intentionally calls her Ruth the Moabitess, which I think draws out again. You gotta buy the outsider. She's part of the deal, man the widow of the deceased in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. Closest relative says, I cannot redeem. I cannot redeem for myself because I would jeopardize my own inheritance. Redeem for yourself. You may have my right of redemption for I cannot Redeem, how often do we not accept the will of God because we fear for our own loss? I'm trying to protect my stuff, and if I actually do this, Lord, that could, that could really mess me up. I'm being vague on purpose because we all have those times in our lives where God offers us an opportunity to walk in our redemption. He offers us an opportunity to serve in a wonderful way, but we back down from it because we say, I can't take that risk. Well, that's where this guy is. I cannot redeem. And verse seven says, now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning the redemption and the exchange of land to confirm any matter. A man removed his sandal and gave it to another, and this was the manner of attestation in Israel. So the closest relative said to Boaz, buy for yourself, and he removed his sandal. Man, they did weird stuff back then. <laughs> Although I'm sure if they were looking at us in our society today, the Hebrew people would say, man, they do weird stuff there. He removed his sandal. What's going on? This is, this is that peculiar law that we've talked about. We looked at in chapter one, I believe, and that's the Leveret marriage. The law of the Leveret marriage, it was not only a Jewish law, but it is written into Torah that says the Goel, the kinsman redeemer, has a responsibility in the family. His responsibility in the Leveret marriage is to marry his brother's widow if he himself is not married, I mean, this is not polygamy, if he's not married and he's the next in line as a brother and his brother dies, then he has the responsibility of marrying his brother's widow, which is why the brothers of a guy getting married wanted to see this bride. They wanted to check her out and approve because anything happens to him, I'm next. And so they would take that responsibility on, but the Goel was also tasked with buying back or redeeming the land that otherwise would be lost from the family inheritance, the land that belonged to his brother. So he would marry the widow and he would, and or he would buy the land that would otherwise be lost. But there's a very odd caveat in this whole story involving sandals and spit. Here's Deuteronomy 25, verse seven. If a man does not desire to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to establish a name for his brother in Israel. He is not willing to perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall summon him and speak to him. And if he persists and says, I do not desire to take her, then his brother's wife shall come to him in the sight of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face and she shall declare, yeah, ooh, right? This is serious business. She comes up, she pulls a sandal off his foot, she hawks a loogie in his eyes, <laughs> and she shall declare, thus it is done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. In Israel, his name shall be called, this is in Torah law, the house of him whose sandal is removed. Bet halus hanaal. 
So this guy now has two names. He's Poloni Almoni and he's Bet Halus Hanaal. I love it. The house of him whose sandal is removed. It was meant as a shame because if you are the Goel, your responsibility, you have a higher responsibility than flimsy emotional love. You have a responsibility to the family. You have a responsibility to who was the sister-in-law but would now need to be your wife. You have a responsibility here. If you refuse that responsibility, well, here's mud in your eye or spit anyway. The woman then would go to the, to the courtyard, take the sandal and spit in the guy's face and again call him Bethalus Ha Naal. It's interesting because Ruth is not in the courtyard. What's Ruth doing? Well, she's sitting at home resting while Boaz does the work, does the task. So bet halus hanaal, poloni almoni, it all starts to fit because it was shameful for the goel to do what this man does. I will not redeem, I can't take that risk. Why, why, why is it so shameful? I, I, you know, bottom line, Mr. So-and-so is a heel. <laughs> I had to think about this. He's a man without a soul. He flip-flops on commitment. Are you with me? Someone ought to give this man the strap or the boot. I don't know, maybe he's, he's got a clog in his heart. That's all I'm gonna do right there. By the way, did you see this morning, I read about this, that um, dad jokes are actually a really good thing. You should look it up. Just, just look up dad jokes, uh, Google that, because dad jokes are actually healthy for the kids and for the dad. I keep telling my kids, this is good for you. This is healthy. Anyway, so Mr. Heal, Mr. So-and-so, he, he wouldn't take a name so he doesn't get one. He doesn't get to be in this lineage. But here's what's interesting. He is still a character in the story. Poloni Almoni, that Halus Hanal, is still a player in this, a character here. And if Naomi portrays Israel and Ruth is a picture of the church and Boaz pictures our kinsman redeemer, Jesus, you wonder who this other nameless guy might be. Let me give you some clues. He is first in line, legally. He is surrounded here by a jury of 10. And yet by his own admission, though he has the legal right to do so, he cannot redeem Ruth, he's a picture of the law, a picture and type of Torah law, of, of the very law of God, which is perfect but cannot redeem you because guess what? You're not good enough for it. You really see this in this guy. I, I can't, I'm a Moabitess. I'd take the land, increase my prosperity and wealth, but, but the woman, forget it, can't do that. She's not good enough for him. And you're not good enough for the law. I'm not good enough for the law. See, the Bible tells us, 1 Corinthians 15, 56, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. The law is not sinful, the law is perfect, but the law illuminates sin because we can't keep it. Because when we are asked for perfect righteousness, we will always fall short. You are not good enough for this guy for the law. And in fact, the more you try, the more you will understand that Torah law, in all its perfection, causes me to cry out one thing, I need a redeemer. I need someone who will redeem me because the law refuses to do it, won't do it, can't do it. Romans 5, verse 13, until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. That's, that is, it's, it's not Translated, it's not seen, it's not understood. But Paul says the law came in, Romans 5.20, so the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That is so profound. The grace of God reigns through righteousness. Whose righteousness? The righteousness of the Christ. 
the righteousness of Jesus, perfect, who did, by the way, keep the law perfectly in and of himself. And he gives us eternal life. The first near kinsman is the law. First near kinsman recognizes the loss of legal property, but cannot help the people. And that's where Boaz steps in, the second. John 1.17 tells us the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Hebrews 10, verse seven. Then I said, Jesus speaking, behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God, And after saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law, then he said, behold, I have come to do your will. Listen to this. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. The first Goel was unable to redeem because we weren't good enough. The second Goel is able to redeem even though we are not good enough because he is. And consider this, again, according to Deuteronomy 25, verses nine and 10, Ruth had the right to go spit in the eye of this Poloni Almoni, this Bet Halus Hanaal. She could be the one there doing it. Shoeless Mr. So-and-so. That was her right but they removed the spitting part in the custom and they kept the sandal removal as a symbolic way of sealing the deal. Let me encourage you, just a side note here, don't spit at the law. Though you might have the right to do so legally, to say, you can't save me, Jesus did, ha, ha, ha. The law is still of great value to us. The law can't save you, but it certainly can work towards sanctifying you and me. I don't keep the Ten Commandments because I think I can prove myself before the Father. The Ten Commandments will just declare me unworthy. But I look at the Ten Commandments as example and I say, if I can follow this, this will make me more Christ-like. If I read and study and consider Torah law and the Hebrew scriptures, this is going to make me more like Jesus who embodied the law. Behold, in the scroll of the book, it's written of me. So there is great value to the law, don't spit in the face of the law. Can you imagine (laughs) if Ruth showed up there and spit in the guy's face? You know, she's sitting at home resting and Boaz is settling the matter on her behalf. And what did Jesus even say of the law? He said, until all things are accomplished, not one iota of the law is gonna disappear. Jesus held the law in great esteem, and again, Jesus kept the entire law himself. You know, what's very interesting to me is that in the case of our kinsman redeemer, Jesus, the reversal took place of this ancient pattern. That is, it wasn't the law that got spat upon, it was Jesus. He was spat upon. Can you even imagine Ruth doing that to Boaz? Absolutely, no way. It wasn't the law that got its sandal removed. It was Christ who took a nail through his feet. And so he fulfills even the the shame of the law. And what the law produces, the shame of sin in the law. I, I, by the way, gently suggest that when we as Christians casually sin, or when we heartily approve of those who do or the things that break Jesus' heart, we might as well be spitting in the face of our Goel or helping to drive the nail through his feet. Well, as the man takes off his sandal in this process, and they remove the spitting part, but they still kind of kept the sandal part as as a picture of this is what is taking place. So he removes his sandal and Boaz steps up. Verse nine. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses today that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and all that belonged to Machlon. Moreover, I have acquired Ruth, the Moabitess, the widow of Machlon, 
to be my wife in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance so that the name of the deceased will not be cut off from his brothers or from the court of his birthplace. You are witnesses today. So we know which one of the sons was Ruth's husband. It was Mahlon. The guy whose name meant, remember this, sickly? So Ruth married sicko? He's sickly, he's machlan, and yet the family line was altered to produce not sickness, but salvation to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. You see, Ruth's first husband was sickly, but then she marries Boaz, and through the marriage to Boaz, we go right down the line, and we end up with one whose name means salvation. From sickness to salvation. Matthew chapter one, verse 21, you shall call his name Jesus, God saves, for he will save his people from their sins. His people by lineage, Israel. His people by flesh, the world. Hold that thought. Romans 11, verse 11 says, I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be, but by their transgression, that is the transgression of Israel, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them, that is Israel, jealous. Now, if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentile, Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? I love the story and I love how Paul describes it in Romans 11. This thing goes full circle. Salvation goes to the Jew first. In the rejection of that salvation, it goes out to the Gentiles who then make the Jews jealous that they might be saved. God has this whole thing worked out and and Paul in Romans 11, just his mind is blown even as he's writing it. How amazing is this? How glorious, how wonderful He speaks of the counsel of God. By the way, um, in this story, Boaz didn't even need the field of Naomi. He was doing just fine. But the man of Bethlehem was willing and able to buy her field, which then redeemed it, blessed Naomi, but he bought the field to marry the bride. Think about that. He bought the field because there was something else that came with it. Jesus said this in a parable, Matthew 13, 44, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid again, and from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Because in redeeming the field, Boaz gets Ruth. And we already know from the rest of the story, Boaz is very impressed with this Ruth. Very impressed that she would come to him and not go seeking a man among the younger servants. She comes to him and, and he's very moved and he's very moved by how, he, how she has treated him and worked for Naomi. And so he sees great value where the, the first Goel looked at Ruth the Moabitess and says, I cannot redeem that. Boaz says, oh, this is a treasure. This is a treasure. Yes, I will buy that field for the treasure. Verse 11, all the people who were in the court and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel. And may you achieve wealth in Ephrathah and become famous in Bethlehem. The word wealth there is power. May you, Boaz, become famous in Bethlehem. Famous? (laughs) The name Boaz is forever bound to Israel's most beloved, famous shepherd king, David. Boaz, in the line of David. And of course, far greater, the most humble fame ever to be born of the lineage of Boaz in the little town of Bethlehem. Put the little town of Bethlehem on the map. Talk about fame in Bethlehem. As for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, Micah 5.2, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you will go forth one for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from days of eternity. Talk about being famous in Bethlehem. Luke chapter two, verse 11, for today in the city of David, there has been born for you a savior who is Christ the Lord. 
Verse 12, moreover, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah through the offspring which the Lord will give you by this young woman. Wait a minute, may your house be like the house of Perez. What does that mean? Perez is the firstborn of Judah, and what they're saying here is that Perez bears the authority of that royal line. Perez gets the authority. Uh, Genesis 49.10, remember what old Jacob said? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him the obedience of the peoples. So what they're saying when they say, may your house be like the house of Perez, they're saying, may, may your house bear royal authority. May your house produce royal authority. And it does. It does. What they say here is very nearly prophetic. They, they say, may you, your name be famous and, and powerful and royal. Famous, powerful, royal. Think about that. Famous, powerful, and royal. There is coming a day, Revelation 19, verse 16, that says, on his robe and on his thigh, he has written a name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Royal, powerful, and famous. Our Jesus. And this is all in the courtyard of little backwater Bethlehem 3,200 years ago. It's a remarkable story with remarkable implications. By the way, I, just, I gotta say this because especially in this generation, people read Revelation 19, 16. He's got a name written on his thigh. Jesus is tattooed. And that's why I got one. Let me just suggest to you something that falls a little more in line with, with the Hebrew scriptures and Hebrew thinking. It's not a tat. It's the kanap. Do you remember the kanap? We talked about it last week. On the robe of every man of Israel, on the four corners of the road, there would be the zitzit, those blue cords, on the talit. The talit today has become the prayer shawl, but it was just the man's robe before, and on the corners, there would be embroidered or written in, there on the hem of the robe, there would be that little square that would speak of the title or authority or family line of the man. Jesus is now sitting on, on a steed. Where would his robe fall? Where would the kanap be? Right on his thigh. So I don't think that it's that, I mean, if you've pictured this and you've struggled with Jesus riding in on a white horse and he's got maybe kind of that Roman centurion skirt that they used to wear, which by the way was not very manly, but that's another topic for another time. You kind of see him in that and then the skirt kind of pulls up and you see this little tattoo, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. That's not it. That's not it. He's got the tallit on and right there, on the corner of the robe, resting on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is famous, he is powerful, he is royal. Verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went in to her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and so she gave birth to a son. Verse 13 is the first time in the entire story I can tell you beyond the shadow of a doubt that there's some romance here. And, and I keep pointing that out, not to take the romance out of the story of Boaz and Ruth, but to point out that we get so hung up in our culture, especially about the feelings stuff. Oh, the story's gotta have the feels, it's gotta be this romance. And you know what? There's something greater than romance here. There's responsibility. Well, Rick, you just took the fun out of the story. Responsibility. See, again, this is our cultural way of thinking. In in earlier Israel, the responsibility had far greater weight than the romance because feelings come and go, but truth remains. And so in the story, what we see is people who are responding to the truth and responding to their responsibilities. Ruth to Naomi, Naomi to Ruth, Boaz to both women. There is a, a great responsibility here that is honorable and pleasing. And yes, royal, famous, and powerful because they all choose to do what is right, which is better than what is romantic. And I'm not anti-romantic, my, my wife will tell you. I'm driving yesterday, Cheryl was here at the retreat, and I'm driving out to Costco to pick some things up, and as I'm driving out, on the radio, comes on the, uh, what's the song? 
REO Speedwagon, uh, can't fight this feeling, right? I'm driving along, you guys are gonna think I'm a total sap, this is just what happened. I'm driving along and I hear, I can't fight this feeling any longer. Uh, and what does he say? What started out as friendship has grown stronger. I heard that line, my eyes filled with tears. I had to text Cheryl, what started out as friendship has grown stronger. <laughs> and then I caused an accident on Whidbey Island. No, no. <laughs> I, I love romance. I get it. I, I, I get the feelings. But this is so much greater. So much greater. Because again, the feelings come and go. But the truth, the truth is eternal. And what takes place here, don't miss the profound nature of these relationships of people who are doing what is right. It's right. And I totally got off. I have no idea where I am. Oh, so Boaz took Ruth. Oh, don't miss this. It says he went into her, which, you know, translation, this is wedding night. This is, they are, they are going to be intimate together. But Yahweh enabled her to conceive. Ever think about this? Ruth hadn't had a son yet. She was married a good 10 years to Machlan in Moab, never had a child. Why? I submit to you that Ruth, like so many women in that time, in the lineages, was barren. That by herself, she was not able to have a child. That even by pagan culture, she could not produce but Boaz goes into her and the Lord, and now she's even older than she was then. Boaz goes into her and the Lord, enabled, the, the scriptures are so absolutely clear, the Lord, Yahweh, enabled her to conceive. That without Yahweh in this story, she would not have given birth. That God, God steps in and produces something supernatural. The word enabled is yatin, which means to give. God gave to her to conceive. And she conceived, therefore, because God gave her the ability to do so, something she had not done before, something she in and of herself was unable to do. And so it's another yet, yet another story of life from barrenness. And we see this throughout the lineage of Israel. It's remarkable how many women could not conceive, but then do conceive because God says you are going to conceive, ultimately leading up to Mary who conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is an ongoing theme with the Lord. And I told you when we started, this story, this little four-chapter story of Ruth began and now it ends with supernatural intervention. Chapter one, verse six, remember this? that Naomi realized the Lord, Yahweh, had visited his people in giving them food? It wasn't that suddenly the land was productive. It was that Naomi recognized God's doing something in Bethlehem. God is at work back in Judah. There is food again, and the only reason why there would be food in famine is because God had provided it. Well, here, the only reason why there's conception in a barren womb is because God has provided it. Again, though it's not the most supernatural conception that Bethlehem would ever know, Luke chapter one, verse 31, Gabriel says to Mary, behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall name him Jesus. Man, you can, you can hardly get through a single verse in this little book without sensing the greatness of Jesus. Everything just keeps pointing to him. Verse 14 then the woman said to Naomi, blessed is Yahweh. So this is now the women who have come in. The women who are gathered, they're aware of this. Now that uh, Ruth is pregnant, Ruth gives birth. The women said to Naomi, not to Ruth, to Naomi, blessed is Yahweh, who has not left you without a goel today, a redeemer today, and may his name become famous in Israel. May he also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Oh, what a beautiful saying. Wait a minute. What did they just say? Who is the goel of whom they speak? It's no longer Boaz. They're not talking about Boaz in verses 14 and 15. They're talking about little Obed. They're talking about the baby. 
the baby, the son, is the redeemer. The son has now become the redeemer. This is the only time in all scripture where this word goel, there in verse 14, is used to describe a child and not an adult. Everywhere else in the Hebrew scriptures, goel has to do with an adult, the responsibility of the kinsman redeemer, a very adult responsibility. But here they say, oh, may he restore you, maybe be a restorer of life, a sustainer in your old age, for your daughter-in-law has given birth to him. To who? To Obed. The son is the redeemer. And the old rabbis, they read this verse, and they see this offspring as a messianic prophecy. It's remarkable. They recognize, you can't ignore, you can't miss what is of Messiah here. Though many of the rabbis ultimately missed the Messiah, they still look at their own scriptures and say, yeah, that's, that's messianic, that's in this line, in this lineage, Messiah must come. Verse 16, then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and became his nurse and the neighbor women gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. What? Wait a minute, I, I must have misread that. A son has been born to Ruth, right? No, a son has been born to Naomi. Naomi, Naomi now becomes the nurse. Don't, don't gross out over that. She's not nursing the child. The word nurse here has to do with caregiver and caretaker. She's grandma and she loves this little grandson and now she's bouncing her little grandson on her lap and she and the grandson have a very special relationship. It's interesting because as the story comes to conclusion, Boaz and Ruth are almost irrelevant because now the son is the redeemer and now Naomi bouncing little Obed is the, is the focal point of the conclusion of the story. A son has been born to Naomi. Why? Because Naomi is the one redeemed. Naomi is the one from loss and, and, and sorrow, from emptiness and famine, she has been redeemed, and now the son she bounces on her knee is her kinsman redeemer. And again, verse 17 continues, so they named him Obed, and he's the father of Jesse, the father of David. Obed means the serving one. They named this little son the, the, the serving one. Why? Because, I don't know. Perhaps because he so served Naomi's aging heart. It's a beautiful story. It implies here at the end a sweet grandmother-grandson relationship. Grandson would serve grandma in her old age. Would that the church have the same attitude toward Israel today. Verse 18. Now these are the generations of Perez. To Perez was born Hezron. To Hezron was born Ram. To Ram, Aminadab. And to Aminadab was born Nachshon. And Nachshon, Salmon. And Salmon was born Boaz. And to Boaz, Obed. And to Obed was born Jesse. And to Jesse, David. And the line continued another 28 generations to Matthew 1:16, Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, and I've shared this before, by whom is the feminine, so Mary by whom Jesus was born, not Joseph, but who is called the Messiah. And so Matthew traces that legal line all the way down to Joseph, who's the supposed father of Jesus, though really it was Mary. So anyone who might say, well, Okay, that's legal, but he's still not technically by flesh the father of the Messiah. Well, so you go over to Luke chapter three, verse 23, that says, Jesus being as was supposed the son of Joseph, the son of Eli. And I've told you this before, that Eli was not Joseph's father. Eli was Mary's father. So Jesus is both of the legal line of Joseph and he is of the genealogical human line of Mary. They both come out of the same place. They both draw from David, who draws, again, from Jesse, Obed, Boaz. So both Joseph and Mary trace back to Boaz and Ruth. And it takes us to the end of the story, but it's not quite the end of the story. I think you know me well. There's one more thing. And perhaps... It's the biggest deal that is truly highlighted in this little book. 
the most important thing that we can understand in this story. I need you to turn all the way to the far end of the scriptures, to the book of Revelation. And we'll end there this morning. The book of Revelation. When you get there, turn on over to chapter five. Revelation chapter five. If anyone is having trouble finding Revelation, a neighbor, help them. Help them find it. Revelation, last book in the Bible, chapter five, verse one. John is in heaven. How do you get to heaven? I'll tell you Wednesday night. John is in heaven. He says, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne. We sang about the throne tonight. A scroll. If your Bible says book, the literal word is scroll. I saw a scroll written inside and on the back or on the outside and sealed up with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one Note this, no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. This is unquestionably a description of a Hebrew title deed. This is the way it was done, specifically for land that is in foreclosure. The deal of the the mortgage of the land would be written on a scroll. But when the mortgage could not be paid, when the land went into foreclosure, when perhaps someone like Naomi's husband, Elimelech, died, and Naomi's left and she has nothing and she cannot pay for the land, the land needs to be redeemed. But they would write it on a scroll. Here's the mortgage. I can't make the mortgage this month or next month or the month after that. Finally, they rolled it up and they they wrote the terms of the foreclosure on the outside of the scroll, and then they took seven seals representing, I told you this Wednesday night, seven's a big number for Jewish people. And they took seven seals on the outside of the scroll representing seven years that you had to pay off the mortgage, and then it goes into full foreclosure. You have seven years. You gotta pay this thing up. Seven years, that's so interesting. Seems like we've been talking about that on Wednesday night. So here's this title deed in foreclosure, seven seals indicating seven years to redeem the lost land. What is the land in question in Revelation chapter five as John watches this truly dramatic scene play out in heaven? It's all the earth. This is the earth in foreclosure because the inhabitants of this world lost the farm all the way back in the garden. We submitted as it is, as it was through Adam and Eve, well, I wasn't there, I didn't do it. You would have. (laughs) They submitted to Satan. The woman was deceived, the man sinned, and the scroll was rolled up, and the seven seals put on it. And this is the scroll that John now sees in heaven. And ever since then, by the way, we have been unable to pay the mortgage. We can't afford it. It's too big. Only one perfect. No one could pay this redemption price. Verse four, John says, then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. He's not weeping over a song from his early relationship. I can't fight this feeling any longer. So meaningful. (laughs) He's not weeping for ridiculous reason. John is weeping over this amazing, profound truth that that there's no hope. There's no hope. We are lost. And so he weeps because the first redeemer was God's law who couldn't help because we couldn't keep it and we weren't good enough for it. Who can do this? Only one. Verse five. One of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. If verse six freaks you out, it should. 
And maybe I'll explain it Wednesday night. And he came and he took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And watch this. They sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to break its seals for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made us to be a kingdom and priest to our God and we will reign upon the earth. In verse 10, if your Bible says you made them and they will reign, the word actually translated we and us. They, you have made us a kingdom and priest to our God, and we will reign upon the earth. They're singing this song, this wonderful song. Who can sing this song? This is the song of the redeemed. Only the redeemed can sing this song. And so John is in heaven, and as he begins to hear this song of worship, as the lamb, as Jesus, takes the scroll of all history and the world in foreclosure, because he is able, they begin to sing. The redeemed begin to sing. Guess what? I think you're being quoted right here. I believe what John was seeing was yet future, and this is the redeemed in heaven singing praises to the lamb, and it's you and me, if you're among the redeemed. Well, Rick, how do you know this is the song of the redeemed? Well, because the word purchased in verse nine is agorazo, and it means you've been redeemed. The word means redeemed. You were slain and redeemed for God with your blood from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You redeemed agorazo. The synonym word for that in the Greek is lutruo. Both words mean redeemed. Agorazo means redeemed by payment. You were bought. And lutruo means you were redeemed by ransom. In both situations, a payment is made, but one even indicates all the more we were ransomed because we were captives of the enemy. The purchaser, the redeemer, obviously Jesus the lamb. The purchase price, his very life. As we're told in Titus 2.14, he gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Jesus is the goel. Jesus is alone worthy to buy the field, worthy to pay that which was in foreclosure. Why? Why Jesus? I want to close out with three reasons for you. Three reasons that Jesus alone could be and is our Goel, our kinsman redeemer. Number one, he's worthy. He's worthy. He alone could give his perfect blood because the blood had to be perfect for this redemption to take place. 1 Peter 1.18, you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless the blood of Christ. Who does John see in the throne room? He sees a lamb standing as if slain. And the lamb comes up and takes the scroll. And the lamb is able, he is worthy to open the scroll. Secondly, Jesus was willing. He was willing. That is of his own volition. He wasn't forced to do this. This wasn't the father saying, son, you gotta go get killed. Son, you gotta go do this. I'm not giving you a choice. Jesus said in John 10, 17, for this reason the father loves me because I lay my life down so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me. I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. The commandment I received from my father, I have the authority. I choose. Jesus was worthy. Jesus was willing. And number three, and this is so important to get, Jesus wore flesh. Because to be a kinsman redeemer, you have to be a kinsman. It's the only way this would work. An angel couldn't do it because an angel is not your kinsman or mine. You have to be kin. That is related to God, yes, but also related to humanity and the word became flesh. The goel has to be a blood relative. Paul says in 1 Timothy 3.16, by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. God 
was revealed in the flesh, was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Jesus, our Goel. Naomi was destitute, as Israel is today. Ruth was the outsider, as you and I. Boaz, a picture of redemption and grace. So this story of Ruth, it's our story. It's not the story of Ruth, it's not the story of Boaz, and it's not even the story of Naomi, it's our story. It's the story of you and me. It's the story, really, of Jesus, who alone was worthy and willing and even wore flesh to be our Goel. He is the Goel for whoever will call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Will you? Have you? Have you called upon Jesus because there is no other way to get into the city of God? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for taking us through this little book. I'm sad, I'm always sad, such a sap. I am sad that the book is over. And every time we come to an end of a book, I have the same emotion, Lord, but this one was so quick. It's so little. And it's such a big deal. We recognize ourselves in the story, Father, and we say thank you for bringing the outsider in. We recognize Israel in the story and we say praise you, Lord, for loving and redeeming Israel. We recognize Jesus above all in this story and we praise your name, Lord Jesus, for being our Goel, for being our Redeemer. And Lord Jesus, I, I simply ask, Spirit of the living God, you will help us to comprehend how vast, how great, how wide, how marvelous is the love and grace of God in Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. 